Now let's get into the Word of God, which is timeless. We know from God's Word that all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired and breathed by the Holy Spirit. And I say that because as you read God's Word, there will be occasions when you'll read a portion of His Word and it will seem obscure or worse, it will seem totally irrelevant. And when you have that experience, I want to encourage you, don't dismiss that passage out of hand and walk away from it forever. Ask God to bring you back to it or to bring it back to you when you've reached the point where you're able to receive its message and recognize its implications and respond in appropriate faith. And if you'll do that, and if you'll wait and be patient, the moment will arrive when that previously obscure passage will leap off the page and engage your heart. And in some cases, you'll feel like the writer is still alive and he's been reading your text messages. That's how relevant it will be. Now, the passage we're going to look at today is an example. It's the ancient, abbreviated family tree of Messiah Jesus. And it opens Matthew's gospel with these quiet, unspectacular words. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Nothing exciting there, at least at first glance. I've entitled today's teaching, Hope for the Rejected. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, help me to do what I cannot do on my own. And help us to do what we can't do on our own. Help me to preach your truth and help us all to understand it and apply it in faith. It runs so contrary to virtually everything we hear on a daily basis. We need your grace to grasp it and to embrace it. Grant us those gifts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. When I first came to faith in Christ, when I was born again at the age of 19 and a half, I immediately felt a hunger to read and study God's Word. Now, the Word of God wasn't new to me. I had heard it preached all my life. I could even quote portions of it, but I was new. God had changed me, and I had a hunger for His truth. So as I began my studies, it seemed logical to begin in the New Testament, and the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. So I dove into Matthew 1 with great enthusiasm. And it only took a few seconds <laughs> before that great enthusiasm was severely challenged. Notebook at the ready, pen in hand, ready to learn life-changing truth. I found myself reading a long list of strange-sounding, unfamiliar names that didn't fit well on my English-speaking tongue. And in between them, I kept encountering this odd word, begat, 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 
we got. It, it, it felt like a case of verbal hiccups. Okay. Now, I believed all Scripture was breathed by God, but I found myself wondering, why would God waste his breath on this? And I subsequently learned he hadn't, but it took me a while. When you get to know the Holy Spirit and the way he works a little bit better, you begin to appreciate that the Holy Spirit is often subtle as he works in our hearts. Now notice I said subtle, not evasive. Big difference. He doesn't hide truth from us. He passionately wants us to know God and to know truth. But he doesn't shape his methods according to our culture of impatience and immediate gratification and noisy, exaggerated claims. If you aren't careful, those things will corrode your soul and render you spiritually tone deaf. So when the Holy Spirit wants us to know something, he doesn't come on like an ad man in an infomercial selling flex seal or copper pants. The Spirit doesn't reveal every lesson with fanfare. He reserves some lessons for those who take time to listen. And in the case of Matthew's opening lines, if we will listen and be patient, we'll discover the Holy Spirit was shouting truth we needed to hear. And he began to shout that truth by his choice of a writer, Matthew. Jesus' genealogy was penned by somebody who was all too familiar with the pain of rejection. Matthew had been a tax collector. And because of that, he knew the pain of being a social outcast, a religious outcast, and a political outcast. He was hated by his own people because he dared to accept employment from their Roman oppressors. And in their way of thinking, if you take your paycheck from our enemy, then you are our enemy. So he was hated by his own people and not cared for by the Romans. So he grew to feel rejected. But fortunately, the day came when Matthew learned that rejection by people doesn't mean rejection by God. Now, you might say, does that need to be said? That's rather obvious. No, it isn't. No, it isn't obvious, and it needs to be said. And here's why. We have a tragic habit of seeing God in light of our past experiences and defining God in terms and in lights of our past relationships and our past pains. And that makes it hard for us to know God as he is, and it makes it incredibly hard for us to accept his amazing restoring grace. So let me remind you, God delights in redemption, in restoration, not rejection. Not rejection. God is not an extension of the perfectionist parent who rejected your very best efforts. 
God is not the extension of that uncle who rejected your soul while he violated your body. God is not the high school bully who bludgeoned you with his or her insecurity and made your adolescence a recurring nightmare. God is not that group of girls who excluded you from their ranks, called you ugly names, and taught you far too early that the wounds of words go far deeper and last much longer than those imposed by sticks and stones. God is not an extension of your former spouse who rejected your best commitment, shunned your love, crushed your heart, and walked out on you. God is not that child who never understood your heart and rejected both your love and your efforts to save him or her. God's not that employer who passed you over for a promotion in favor of somebody less qualified. God's not that friend who became a foe when you needed him or her the most. And God is not that parent who gave you up for adoption and left you to spend the rest of your life asking the question, why? And God is not that group of people who continually judge you by your pigmentation, your politics, or your postal address and reject you as one of them. God is none of those things. None of those things represent God. And that's why when the most perfect soul in the universe took on human flesh, moved into the hood, dwelt among us, and announced the kingdom of God, Matthew, the community outsider, became Matthew, the kingdom insider. And the invitation to make that move came from none other than Jesus himself. Now, upon accepting Jesus' extraordinary offer, Matthew left his old life behind, but not all of it. A verse that's often quoted and often misunderstood is that one where Paul said, if you're in Christ, you're new creation, the old things have passed away, all things have become new. The verse means you are no longer a part of the old fallen order, you are now a part of God's new created order, his church. But not everything changes. Look in the mirror. You still look the same. Listen to your voice. It sounds the same. Your basic personality remains the same. Everything doesn't change when you step into the kingdom because when we follow Jesus, he doesn't reject our talents and abilities. He redeems them. He restores them to their original purpose. He gives them a new eternal significance. So Matthew was new, but he held on to his knowledge of the Greek language. He held on to his sharp organizational skills, and he held on to his pen and paper. And the Spirit would lead him to use them all in strategic fashion to record the genealogy of Jesus. And that God ordered that reminds us that God doesn't waste words. Everything he says, he says for a good reason. And this dry genealogy is no exception. So I want to consider just a few of the reasons why God ordered this. 
because those reasons have something to say to you and to me. And I want to begin with this. Jesus' genealogy was necessary because we have a habit of rejecting God as he is in order to make him in our own image. If you ever tell God, Lord, I feel rejected, he might just say, take a number. <laughs> because nobody has been rejected more than me. Think of that. The most rejected soul in the universe is God himself. Countless people have rejected him. You see, because of our broken spiritual condition in which we begin life, we naturally, inherently feel rejected before a perfect and a holy God. And we sense the spiritual distance and the spiritual dissonance that are created by our sin. I'm persuaded that's why so many people spend so much of their time immersed in their cell phone or social media. It's a distraction from the dissonance in our souls, and we don't want to face that dissonance. So we distract ourselves with nonstop, frivolous entertainment. See, we intuitively sense we're out of harmony with our Creator. We're going against the grain of His universe. But rather than repenting of our sin and accepting God's incredible restoration, some, not the majority, but some, seek to dismiss their dissonance by denying the existence of God altogether. And that's growing in popularity. They essentially deal with feeling rejected by God by rejecting God himself. But most take another subtler course. In their minds, they recreate God in their own image. You've heard me say many times, God created us in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. We create him in our image. In our minds, we create a God who is an extension or a reflection of our nationality, our ethnic identity, our personality, our politics, our economic interests, our sexual inclinations, our agendas, our lifestyle, maybe even our local church, to name just a few. And why do we do that? I suspect it's because if we can convince ourselves God is just like us, albeit on our best days, <laughs> if he's just like us, then he would not reject us. It's a defense mechanism. And, and you hear echoes of this when some moral issue in society is being debated and somebody chimes in, well, the God I serve would never condemn that. And I always want to respond, but the God you serve doesn't exist anywhere outside of your imagination. Because that's a God you created in your image. Because you're for it, God's for it. Because you're against it, God's against it. No, no, no. See, you're reversing things. And the temptation to do this doesn't end the moment you step into God's kingdom. In fact, it intensifies. And I would suggest the ongoing and now escalating divisions within the body of Christ along political and ethnic fault lines testifies to that reality. I've been reading again 
some writings of a few years ago about tribalism. And the writers showed through extensive research that when a culture appears to be working, people are more comfortable with diversity. When it appears to be breaking down, people seek to find their tribe and hunker down with the folks who are just like them. And I don't think it would be remiss to say we are watching escalated tribalism in our nation. And it runs contrary to everything Jesus came to create. Because of this tendency to make God in our own image, when God's words and actions don't align with our concepts of him, we feel threatened and we often go into spiritual attack mode. Or we go to another church. <laughs> we question God and his word rather than allowing God and his word to question us. What's that got to do with the genealogy? That's why the genealogy was necessary. See, you're all familiar with the past controversy over former President Obama's genealogy. Some who were threatened by his political agenda suggested he wasn't a native-born American citizen, and therefore he wasn't qualified to be president. And those who advanced that allegation were known as what? Birthers. Well, when Jesus arrived, he claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah. That threatened a lot of people's agendas. That threatened the religious establishment. That threatened the political establishment. It threatened their concept of God. So many in the Jewish community became birthers. There is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> the Messiah had to have pure Jewish bloodlines. He had to be a descendant of King David. If Jesus didn't meet both those requirements, they could dismiss him out of hand, end of the threat. So they began trolling on social media. They began spreading ugly stories that his father was unknown, that this teenage girl got knocked up and was embarrassed and didn't want to lose her fiancé, so she made up this story, do you believe this, that God did it. And, 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 and they couldn't haul God into Maury Povich's show and, and, and check his DNA because nobody had God's DNA. So his father's unknown. We don't know the birth daddy. So he can't be the Messiah. And that's why Matthew began with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He was rebutting the birthers. But beyond that, he was leaving us a needed reminder. When we fall to the temptation to make God in our own image, we end up rejecting his truth in the name of protecting it. See, that's what the Pharisees did. They staunchly stood for God's truth. But as they stood for it, they violated it at virtually every point. And again, nothing new under the sun. As I look at the church in the United States of America, there's a lot of that going on. 
people saying, well, we're defending the gospel, but all the while they're violating it point after point after point after point after point. And Satan loves that, and it breaks the heart of God. I'm going to touch on this after the new year, but one of the things I see happening as an insecure body of Christ in this country seeks to protect its freedoms, it is making alliances with Egypt. And God forbade that through the prophet Isaiah. And he said, that road will lead you to ruin. And it's starting to happen already. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, not who or who isn't in the White House. When you put your trust in man rather than God, you've got to get man's results and not God's. There is more truth embedded in this genealogy that I could possibly cover. So I'm just got to make an abrupt shift and I've got to shift away from focusing on those who heard the genealogy as bad news. He is legit. And I want to shift it to those who received it as incredibly good news. See, those who rejected Jesus didn't see themselves as sinful. But most people didn't suffer from that problem. They knew they were sinful. And they had been told repeatedly that they were beyond God's grace, that they were a hot mess and a holy God could never love them. And Matthew had been one of them. That explains why he went out of his way in his Cliff Notes version of Jesus' family tree to include the excluded. Those who fancied themselves all righteous every day literally prayed, and as they prayed, they thanked God that they weren't Gentiles, Thank God that they weren't women. Thank God that they weren't notorious sinners. And thank God that they weren't publicans, Jews who worked for Rome, like Matthew. Like some religious people today, they prided themselves more on who they weren't than on who they were. It's easy to do. So when he's putting this genealogy together, Matthew went out of his way to include the excluded. He included Gentiles. Moabites, Canaanites, people like Rahab and Ruth. He included four women. Three of them were descendants of Noah's son, Ham. Now, why do I emphasize that? If you know American history, you know that people carrying Bibles supported the demonic evil of slavery in this country by saying the black race is experiencing the curse of Ham. Well, then Jesus had descendants of Ham in his family tree. I guess he was cursed. <laughs> See, you can carry a Bible and know virtually nothing of it. Slavery was built on bad theology. Theology prompted by economy. Matthew included notorious sinners. Two of the women committed adultery, and in the interest of political correctness, two of the men had committed adultery. And of course, there was a hooker 
in the batch as well. Now, when it's seen in this light, Matthew's seemingly dry opening is actually two things. It's a dangerous declaration to idolaters and the smug and the self-righteous. But it is a liberating invitation to those who know they have a mess. It refutes those who would make God in their own image to serve their own interests. It encourages those who feel like they might be beyond forgiveness. And it affirms God's intended identity for his church. A people who transcend economic, economic, gender, generational, and political barriers because they understand they are one in Christ. And in the Spirit's often subtle style, it shouts a message that would be beautifully summarized centuries later by the well-known writer Oswald Chambers. He said, and I quote, The cross of Jesus Christ is the door whereby God keeps open house for the universe. Anyone can go through that door. And I would say the cross is where God opened that door. The genealogy is where God announced it was going to be open, and it was going to be open to anyone, no matter how rejected they felt, no matter their past, no matter their sins, no matter their social standing, no matter how many times they'd been rejected by people, no matter how a fallen world looked at them. Anyone can go through that door. There is hope for the rejected. And I'd like to suggest if this genealogy were read to the accompaniment of music, better than Silent Night or Joy to the World would be the refrains of Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that sought to restore and redeem a sinner and a hot mess like me. Four of the most beautiful words in Scripture are ones we hear this season of the year. For you, a Savior. For you, a Savior. For you, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There is hope for the rejected. Let's pray together. If you're a believer and God has spoken to you about something in your walk that doesn't belong there, an attitude, a mindset, a way of thinking, don't debate him. He's right. He's always right. Submit to him and confess and repent and ask. And if you're with us today and you've never stepped into the kingdom of God, you've heard the invitation, but maybe you let your sense of rejection keep you away. The primary reason people don't come to Jesus, according to the Bible, is fear. Fear of rejection. If you've let your feelings of rejection keep you from God, let the genealogy point out you can walk through the door. And you can do that if you'll just 
in your heart where you're seated, reach out and take his invitation and say, Jesus, I believe you died and rose again so that I could be restored. I take Jesus as my Lord. Restore me now. Father, forgive us for making you in our own image. Help us to see you as you've clearly presented yourself in the Christ, in the Word, and in the Holy Spirit. And help us to rejoice that no matter what our mess, there is hope for us in Jesus' name. Amen. A final thought. God prepares his people for their kingdom assignments. Matthew's past had been painful, but he didn't allow his pain to paralyze him. He parlayed his past rejection into a profound grasp of grace, a powerful understanding of what God was up to, and a passage that today offered you and me hope. So in closing, if there is pain in your past, let me suggest make your pain your preparation for God's next assignment in your life. You knew the pain of being given up by a parent? Let God use that to prepare you to find similar people and tell them that you found somebody whose love goes deeper than any parents ever could. Let your pain be your preparation for your next assignment. God bless you.